let's reconvene for the last session of this course. Uh, and in doing so, uh, we want to finish up with the Tenth Commandment, and then we'll switch more properly to our conclusions. So the Tenth Commandment I want to treat just at, in slightly uh, longer form, because there's two interesting condi- uh, issues to consider when thinking about the, the Tenth Commandment. The first is this. Other than the Sabbath commandment, the Tenth Commandment is the one that differs most between the Exodus version and the Deuteronomy version. So we saw already last week that the, uh, in the Sabbath commandment, the motivation for keeping it was very different in the Exodus and Deuteronomy versions. But here, too, uh, in the Tenth Commandment, we see a significant difference between Deuteronomy and Exodus. There we go. Um, I've highlighted this in English, and I'll talk a little bit about the Hebrew. But you'll note that in both Exodus 20.17 and Deuteronomy 5.21, there are two verbs used in this one commandment. However, what's the difference? In Exodus, the same verb is used twice, and in Deuteronomy, two different verbs are used. And this actually is, is borne out in the Hebrew. In the Deuteronomy version, there are two different verbs used, one hamad, uh, one aveh, and in Exodus, it's only hamad. So what this might suggest is that in the Deuteronomy version, there are two different modes of coveting in view, or there's two different activities that might be broadly construed as coveting that are being prohibited. So don't do this, but also don't do that. Whereas in Exodus, it's just different things you should not covet. It's the same verb with different objects. So that's one difference. And, and actually, the, uh, even the way the ancient scribes wrote out these texts might suggest that this was actually two commandments and not one. Uh, here again is the Leningrad Codex, which I think we looked at in the second week. It's the earliest full manuscript we have of the entire Old Testament. It's from the early 11th century. And if you recall, every new commandment given was set off by an indentation or a margin, which was actually an odd thing to do in these texts because you're always trying to save space and didn't want to lose it by by these indents. But here is the first commandment, valo takmud, and here's the second, valo titaveh. All what we would consider the Tenth Commandment, but the ancient scribes do two indentations. So it might give us the sense that they were thinking of this as two different commandments. And of course, if you remember, in the the Lutheran and Catholic traditions, these, in fact, are considered two different commandments. Thou shalt not cover uh, your neighbor's spouse, and thou shalt not cover your neighbor's stuff. Two different commandments, and that seems to be consistent with the use of two different verbs in Deuteronomy and the spacing Uh, within this one commandment of two different ideas. So that's one major difference uh, between Exodus and Deuteronomy. But there's another, and I want to see if you can pick it up. There's another big difference other than the verbs between Exodus. I want to give you about 30 seconds to look at it. Okay, so the order of what to covet is different. In Exodus, the house is first. And in Deuteronomy, it's one's, uh, it's, it's the neighbor's spouse is first. It's actually even a little bit more than that. Remembering that the Exodus version uses the same verb, 
it seems the Exodus is, is saying this, don't uh, covet your neighbor's house, by which we mean, and then it's going to label all of the things that are part of your neighbor's house. So, your neighbor's wife, your male and female slave, the ox, the donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. In the Exodus version, the wife is considered part of the property of the neighbor. But not so in Deuteronomy, right? So do not covet your neighbor's wife or spouse. Now neither shall you desire your second verb, your neighbor's house or field or male or female slave or ox or donkey or, or anything that is in your neighbor's house. So uh, the Deuteronomy version does not treat the wife as part of the neighbor's property. This is interesting because, in fact, all of the book of Deuteronomy has a remarkably more egalitarian perspective than much of the rest of the Old Testament. So there's a thought, and we don't know exactly why this is the case, but Deuteronomy shows much more concern for the equality of men and women than many other texts in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And this is one case where we might see that fleshed out, where the wife is not property of the neighbor. So that's a good thing, I think, in many ways, and, and an important difference. Now, the second question with these two commandments, oops, sorry, let me go back there. The second question with these two commandments is this. What sort of action is prohibited by coveting? And how is it different than the commandment not to steal? I've once I heard a joke that said, what are the last five commandments? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and don't even think about it. <laughs> that, that last commandment deals kind of with the internal attitude. Like it's one thing to steal, but to covet is that desire that might lead to stealing. So it's not enough just not to take someone else's stuff. Don't even think about taking someone else's stuff. It, it, it begins to point to the way in which, and this happens a lot in the New Testament through Jesus' teaching, the way in which the commandments are internalized and made more difficult, right? So I can say that, you know, probably in this past week I have not stolen anything, but could I say I have not coveted something this past week? That would be harder to say than not stealing. So it's, again, it's showing how the commandments uh, open up a broader ethical space other than just kind of the letter of the law. So that's one possibility, and I think it's a good one. However, I should note that this word using a used for covet, hamad, um, it actually, when it's used in the Old Testament, it typically implies a type of desire that leads to taking something. So in the Old Testament, this word is not just about kind of something you do in your mind. It's something you do in your mind that typically leads you to doing something with your hands as well. So it's not just a, it is, it maybe it makes it more internal, but it, there's still something very tangible with this verb. Um, it's also important to note, and I'll end on this uh, for the 10th commandment, that no object, uh, or excuse me, let me, I want to say the reverse. It's important to note that an object is provided. Right? So it's do not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's slave, your neighbor's donkey, your, your neighbor's ox. Think about the commandments that came right before this. Is there an object? No. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. The reason that this is important is that this commandment should not be taken as a commandment not to desire or not to have desires. 
The, this commandment is about not desiring certain things in a malicious way. And I think sometimes we get this, we get this wrong. Sometimes we think in Christian circles, particularly in ones that kind of uphold uh, asceticism or other things, we think that the deprivation of desire is the goal of the Christian life, that is the really faithful, pious person, has no desires. No desires for happiness, no desires for intimacy, no desires for sex, no desires for any earthly pleasure. But that is consistently not the message of Scripture, and it's not the message here of the Decalogue. This has in view certain things you should not desire because they belong to someone else. It's not a command fully to not desire. In fact, a great uh, example of this is way back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 2.9. It says that the Lord made the fruit of the trees pleasing to Adam and Eve. And that word pleasing, the same word in Hebrew as the word for coveting. So God made the fruit of the tree before the fall desirable covetable, but in a good way. One should desire for that fruit. It was only in the case of Adam and Eve when they desired the wrong fruit that things went awry. It wasn't though the desire that was the problem. It was desiring something that belonged to another. That's the problem. So we should keep that in mind and not kind of extrapolate out from this uh, to some sort of Christian asceticism or, or lack of desire. In fact, the Old Testament talks a lot about desire. One might read, for instance, the Song of Songs to learn a little bit about the place of desire and intimacy in relationship. Okay, let me move on then to some final concluding words about the role and function of these ancient laws in the church today. First, uh, and I'll do this in two ways, although I think I'll have to cut some of this a bit short. First, I want to look at a text in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that deals with the Ten Commandments. And, and I want to do this because I want to see what might be gleaned about the place of the Decalogue in Jesus' teaching. Because what does Jesus have to say about this stuff? How does it factor into the message that Jesus gives? This should, I think, be important to the church's consideration about the place of the Decalogue in our lives today. And second, I want to explore this, the extent to which the commandments are a sufficient source for Christian ethics. That is, how important are these commandments? Can we really hang our hat on the Decalogue if we want to be a church who is ethically and morally directed in the right way? So the story I want to, first, the story I want to turn to in the Gospels is a story about the rich young man. And this is probably a story that will sound familiar to most of you once we get into it. Um, it occurs in all three Gospels, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18, and it, uh, it constitutes the most extensive citation of the Ten Commandments in all of the New Testament. So if you consider like what part of the Ten Commandments gets cited, this is the place it gets cited in broadest form. So it makes it a good text to look at. So let, let's just read together a little bit and we'll pause for some questions. This is the Matthew version. Then someone came to him, the hymn is Jesus, and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, again, this is Jesus to the rich ruler, uh, or sorry, the other way around, which ones? He's asking, which commandments should I keep? And Jesus said, quoting the Decalogue, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, 
you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. He's quoting half of the Decalogue in response to this rich young ruler's uh, question. Now, again, what do you notice about the order? Well, Jesus gets them mostly in order, right? One would be disappointed otherwise. Murder, six. Commit adultery, seven. Steal, eight. Bear false witness, nine. But then oddly, number five, he puts at the end. We don't exactly know why that happened. Maybe, again, he wasn't concerned about the order, but it's curious to me that he got four in a row and then kind of reverted back. Maybe it was an afterthought. Oh, yeah, and also don't honor your father and mother. Uh, or honor your father and mother. Um, now, what's interesting to note, uh, in the parallel account in the Gospel of Mark, there's actually an additional commandment that is added right after, right here, right after thou shalt not bear false witness. Mark says that Jesus said, thou shalt not defraud. Now, what is that? I don't remember that in our list. Did Jesus just add one, make one up? Well, one idea is that, what does it mean to defraud? Well, defraud means to illegally obtain money from someone by deception. It might, in fact, be a form of coveting, or at least it's the action uh, that results from coveting. And so maybe Jesus, in Mark's gospel, had a more complete list. He didn't just go from six to nine, he went from six to ten. Who knows? Uh, but it's there in Mark. Now, the second thing I want to notice is that take a look at Jesus' comment in verse 17. He, uh, the, the ruler says to him, or Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep these commandments. Note what Jesus is saying. Jesus does not dismiss these commandments as outdated or unnecessary for what it means to follow him. He says, if you wish to enter life, Keep these commandments. And then he quotes the Decalogue at length. Jesus here is tying the Decalogue to eternal life. He doesn't just say, just believe in me, and it's all good. Don't worry about the OT. Don't worry about the laws. Jesus isn't saying that. He says, how do you enter into life? You keep the commandments in the Decalogue. It's shocking for, for many Christians to see that Jesus places such an emphasis here on keeping the law. Um, these commandments for Jesus in the early church were an ethical core. They were at the center of Hellenistic Judaism and certainly a part of the early Christian catechesis or early Christian teaching. But I want to add two caveats here. Um, one is that this line, if you wish to enter into life, is not included in Mark and Luke. It's only Matthew who puts these words on Jesus' lips. Now, what do, we make, what do we make of that? Well, it perhaps reflects the propensity of the Gospel of Matthew to show Jesus' ties to the Old Testament. Matthew, more than the other Gospel writers, is concerned to show Jesus as Moses 2.0, as the authoritative interpreter of Torah. So maybe Matthew adds this to kind of continue to frame this picture of Jesus as one who is consistent with the Old Testament and who is kind of taking the place of Moses as a deliverer of the law. Now my second caveat is this. Even still in Matthew's uh, account, the comment is not exactly a statement about works righteousness. That is, keep, do a bunch of good stuff in order to grant favor with God. Note the wording here. The ruler asks, 
what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus says, if you wish to enter, not eternal life, but if you just wish to enter life. What does he mean here? Well, one possibility, and I think it's a good one, is that Jesus is not talking about eschatology in heaven. He's talking about the good life, the life of the good neighbor, the life of righteousness here on earth. He's kind of redirecting the question of the rich young ruler in some ways. He's not connecting the commandments per se to salvation, but to an ethics of a virtuous life. Now, I think Jesus would be quick to add that that virtuous life is closely tied to questions about what it means to follow God and what it means uh, to inherit salvation. But I think we can pull back a little bit and say that maybe Jesus is sketching out not a roadmap to heaven, but a roadmap to the virtuous life. Now I want to keep reading. Um, another unique feature of Matthew's version occurs in the rest of verse 19, which you see here in orange. After he lists the commandments with father and mother, he says, also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't remember that as being on the Decalogue. Was that, what, was that number 11 that we didn't quite get to for lack of time? So there's a question of, how does this, what's in orange, relate to what's in yellow? Why does Jesus tack this on? And I think there's two possibilities. One, we might understand the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself as a summation of the last six commandments of the Decalogue. That is, what does it mean to honor one's parents and not murder and all these other things? Well, stated positively and as a way of summing it all up, it means love your neighbor, right? So Jesus might be here interpreting the last six commandments for us with a very simple phrase, love the neighbor. And in fact, Paul does something similar. For the sake of time, I won't go into it, but in Romans 13, 9, Paul also lists the last six commandments of the Decalogue and sums it up with, love your neighbor as yourself. This was a very common idea in the early church, that loving one's neighbor was not some new ethic that Jesus invented, but rather it was just a way of articulating in small form what the last six commandments of the Decalogue spelled out in a lengthier way. But I also want to offer a second possibility, and that is this. Love your neighbor as yourself isn't just a summary of the Decalogue, it's a radicalization of the Decalogue. Here's what I mean. It is, the Decalogue is not just about doing the commandments, but it's about doing, following the thou shalt nots. It's also following the, ex, the implicit thou shalls that go with these explicit thou shalt nots. And I think we get the sense of this in the, in the rich ruler's response. The young man said to him, I have kept all of these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Now, what's going on here? I think what's happening, in fact, is that, the rich, so what the rich young ruler lacked was not his ability to follow the Ten Commandments. What he lacked was his ability to love the neighbor as himself. He did all of the thou shalt nots, or that is, he abstained from all the thou shalt nots, but he didn't go that one step further by following the thou shall. And so when he goes away sad because he was very rich and didn't want to give to the poor, I think he wasn't embodying, truly, the commandment to love the neighbor as himself. He got the thou shalt nots, but not the thou shalls. Um, so perhaps in this line, then, we have a summary of the whole Decalogue, 
uh, or the whole second half of the Decalogue at least, is a way of not only articulating its ethical point, but also of radicalizing it and saying that there's more to this prohibition. There's a positive ethical response that the church is responsible for if you wish to truly follow Jesus. So the point here is not that Jesus is saying the Ten Commandments are insufficient or are replaced. Rather, he's pointing out that the rich young ruler was not really following the commandments as they were intended in the first place. So he really wasn't following these perfectly. He wasn't actually getting the point. Um, and I think what's actually nice about this, uh, about this, this, this text here is that uh, the idea that the rich young ruler was sad to give up his possessions might also suggest that he had a problem following the first four commandments as well. If you recall in the epistles of Paul, he defines idolatry as greed. Idolatry as greed. In the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6 tells us that one cannot serve both God and mammon, God and wealth. So the fact that the rich young ruler couldn't give up his wealth, his mammon, his idol, or his God, might suggest, in fact, that he really had a problem with all ten commandments. Insofar as, in not loving the neighbor as himself, he was violating the last six commandments, and in not being able to give up his wealth, he was implicitly violating the first two, if not the first four. For you see, in all the New Testament, we can get out of here on this, in all of the New Testament, the Decalogue is not done away with. Jesus never gets to the point and says, don't worry about it. It's good, just follow me. What Jesus tends to do is to radicalize or make more difficult following the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you think about it, the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, they actually are just a short way of summing up all of the Decalogue. The first one, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, encapsulate the first four commandments. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself, encapsulates the last six. So for Jesus then, the Decalogue was alive and well as an ethical source for the early church. It was never done away with. It was only assumed that it was a starting point for important questions about how to approach God in worship, in devotion, and how to approach neighbor in a way that sustained well-being, justice, and compassion. The Decalogue was at the core of how the early church should act and be as followers of Christ. And I think so too should it be at the core of how the church today acts and believes as followers of Christ. Nevertheless, understanding the commandments as the foundation and framework for Christian ethics, as I think Jesus lays out for us, does not imply that there's nothing more to be said. In fact, as we have seen, I think, throughout this course, the Ten Commandments are the starting point, not the ending point, of a complex trajectory of thought that involves continual interpretation and application. If you remember, even after the Ten Commandments are given in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, the very next section in those texts basically take up the Ten Commandments and say, but what if? How does it apply to this place? and this time, and this circumstance. So from the very, very beginning, the giving of the Decalogue didn't settle all ethical matters. It started a conversation. It invited the people of God in both the form of ancient Israel and the church today to take up the principles 
of the Decalogue and think them through in ways that matter and are sensitive to the real context in which we live. We might say that the Ten Commandments provide a lot of elbow room, as it were, in the moral space that they sketch out for us. The direction the Ten Commandments uh, give us needs much fleshing out, and we need to think critically about how these ancient laws come to life and make claims on believers and the church at different times in different places. It is this work of reflection, I think, that falls to the church today. And it is why the end of our course really should mark the beginning of what I hope is a lifelong study of the Ten Commandments. Thank you very much.